They've done a marvelous work today. And I want to invite your attention to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. There's a long train throughout the scripture that sets a pattern of how God deals with his people. I think, for example, about Noah, who was called to build an ark in the desert. And then Abraham, God called to have a child at age 100, having left the homeland of Haran and Ur of the Chaldees. It's not something typically you did at that age as a wealthy, respected man, uh, being Abraham, that is. And then uh, David, a shepherd boy, taking on the giant Goliath. And then the center of the Christian faith and the great symbol of the Christian faith is not a cushion, a comforter, or a pillow, but a cross. Well, that's by design. That's not something that's happenstance. That is indeed by design. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that have walked with the Lord for some time, does it seem to you that God finds that one thing in your life that scares the daylights out of you, then organizes your life around it? That is by design. It's because we get an awful lot more out of that than we do comfort. Someone wrote C.S. Lewis one time and said, what is the most comfortable religion? And he replied, well, uh, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping yourself apparently is. He said, I did not come to Christianity to be comfortable. He said, in fact, if you're looking for a comfortable religion, I don't suggest the Christian faith. I, I would agree with you. And we find something like that reflected in Jeremiah chapter 32. Here, Jeremiah, in the midst of a war, purchases land within the battlefield. It's precisely what happens here. And I want to use a little alliteration this morning to describe the chapter uh, and all, uh, so that you can understand the, the story if you're not familiar with it this morning. Uh, one element that goes into this happens to be Jeremiah's prophecy. He had been saying since chapter 29, verse 10, we're going to leave this land and come back after 70 years. He really believed they were coming back. And that after being destroyed and decimated and eliminated and expelled from the land, that God would eventually bring them back. And so he puts his money where his mouth has been. He purchases land for his family as an investment some three score ten years later that they could enjoy. So he's been saying that from chapter 29, verse 10. And then he is thrown into prison in chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. That's the text for this morning. He's thrown into prison because he has preached this very message that we're going to be exiled, eliminated from the land by the judgment of God. Then we have God's preparation of him. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord tells him, you've got a cousin that's going to come along and offer you some land. And then we find the proposal. His cousin Hanamel comes along and offers him a land. Now all of our families have a cousin like this, don't we? Boy, have I got a deal for you at every family gathering. Everyone has a cousin or a sibling just like this. And this is what Hanamel does. He shows up at the opportune time. And I'm sure that he probably calculated that Jeremiah really believed he was coming back. Well, since you're coming back, certainly you want to make a land investment. Well, then we go on to the purchase. Jeremiah purchases the land and he follows the typical closing that uh, you would go through in his era, in his time, for closing on the land. He purchases it in front of witnesses, writes a couple documents, has them buried, and seals it in front of witnesses is what he does. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said about Jeremiah here that it is a strange purchase for a rational man. And I would say that is indeed true. It is probably the worst real estate deal ever. 
But Jeremiah has been preaching. God's going to bring us back. So he starts making investments that will not be realized in his family for 70 years. So he makes the purchase. And then beginning in verse number 16, or verse number um, uh, 15, he begins to pray and seeks the Lord and talks to God about this uh, purchase. And then God makes him a promise beginning in chapter 32 and verse number 26. Now, why is it that Jeremiah purchased this land in the midst of a war zone, in a theater of war? Begin reading with me in Jeremiah 32 and verse number 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, when I delivered the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands. Jeremiah rooted his purchase in solid Old Testament theology. And that is, God created the heavens and the earth by His great power, and God loves with great loving kindness and tender mercies thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Creation and redemption shaped Jeremiah's life even to the extent of an unusual, inadvisable purchase of land. You know why Jeremiah purchased the land? Because even creation and redemption were not too difficult for God. There is nothing too difficult for God. And you and I can know God better when we understand that God arranges our lives in such a way that we will have to walk by faith in the truth that nothing is too difficult for God. If you're constantly confronted with those kinds of situations, welcome to the Christian faith. In other words, if you find that God is directing you and moving you and challenging you to the point where your teeth usually chatter and your knees knock, and you're intimidated, and He moves you to the point where you feel like you need to collapse and cry out, God, I can't do it. You are in the right position as a Christian person. That's typical. And it happens over and over again. There is hardly a moment of reprieve from that kind of activity of God in a heart and life. And so what I want to say to you is this. God's dream and God's vision for you, for our church, for our community, is probably much larger and much more intimidating and frightening than we've ever anticipated. Than we've ever dreamed and ever imagined. Why? Because God does not measure dreams and vision. God does not measure what He does in our lives by our ability, but by His size. Now that knocks the breath out of me. Beloved, I've got to say to you then, we are in for a ride. If we follow the Lord and obey Him, we really are. So I I should have warned you this morning to bring your crash helmet and a flame retardant suit and probably a parachute, because you're going to feel like the Lord's throwing us out of a plane. A perfectly good one, too. That is often how God does things. He did it with Noah, He did it with Abraham, He did it with David, and He did it with His very own Son, and we don't get to escape that number. Well, when we say nothing is too difficult for God, what's included in the nothing? Well, there's several things I think that arise from the text. And one is, there is no prayer so large God cannot answer it. No prayer is so large and so intimidating and so ambitious before God that if it's in His will, He cannot answer it. 
one lady was told that her health was declining and that she just must come to the Lord and trust Him and pray about it. And she said, oh no, has it come to that? Vance Havner told that story and he said, look, you have to understand, it always comes to that. So we don't end there, we've got to begin there. So much of the effectiveness of your life and mine and and our church and what we're able to do in our community and in our world will be in direct proportion to the intensity and the content and the time we spend before God in prayer. And that's what Jeremiah learned here in this text from verse number 16 on through verse number 25. Now, I want us to look a little bit at the prayer this morning for just a moment. And and I want to show you a few things that are quite interesting uh, about that if you read, read it carefully. Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Well, that's Genesis 1 and 2 and and other texts. There's nothing too hard for you. Verse 18, You show loving kindness to thousands. Well, have you heard that before? Well, that arose in Exodus chapter 20. You repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of the children after them. Exodus 22, The great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. Lord, Yahweh, He revealed that to Moses where? In Exodus chapter 6. And then you are great in counsel in mighty work. Well, Isaiah has been saying much the same thing, especially in Isaiah 9. Your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. 2 Chronicles 16.9. Verse number 20. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 7 through 12. Uh, to this day, and in Israel among other men, and you've made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. Exodus chapter 12 through 15. And a strong hand, outstretched arm, with great terror. You've given them this land, the whole book of Deuteronomy, of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a theme of Deuteronomy. And they came in and took possession of it, but they've not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you've commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Well, he's just described all of Judges and uh, uh, 1 Kings from chapter 12 to the end of 2 Kings. What we find here in Jeremiah's prayer, I think, is very instructive for us. And that is, Jeremiah loaded his prayer life with Scripture. Jeremiah based his prayers upon the Bible. Not mere human invention or tradition or feelings. And I think those things can come into play in prayer. But one of the things I've tried to do for the last couple of decades, I guess now, at least one, is to read through my Bible each morning and to pray through the text. Because God hears prayer that is in His will and the Bible is in His will. What God says in His Word is in His will. And so this morning I read in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, that, under, that, the, that your God is your refuge, and so we can hide in Him. And underneath you are everlasting arms. So we can rest in and on His safety and protection. And so as I prayed for myself, I prayed for that today. As I prayed for my family, I prayed for that today. As I prayed for you this morning, I prayed for that today. In other words, I was able to take my Bible reading and shape it into prayer. As I pray for those who don't know the Lord, I prayed for that as well. I prayed that they would find that, that God is a refuge of salvation and underneath them are strong everlasting arms of everlasting salvation. 
And so the scripture will suggest about what to pray. And I've got to assure you, friend, that whenever God hears prayer in His will, God acts is what He does. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that in the near future. And so I want to save a little bit for uh, later. But there is no prayer so large, so audacious that God cannot answer it. One of the things we've got to do out of the gate in our ministry together, in our service together, is that we're going to have to intensify and reshape probably the content of our prayer life. And we'll do all that we can to lead in that. Because there's no prayer so large that God cannot answer it. But there's a second thing here as well. There is no evil so strong God cannot topple it. Now, Jeremiah is very concerned about this from verse 26 down to verse 35. It is religious evil he's thinking of in verse number 29. In fact, the evil of Judah's religion forms bookends in this passage. Verse 29, And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it. The holy city of Jerusalem he's talking about. With the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods, to provoke me to anger. And then he picks up the religious theme in verse number 35 as well. Verse 34 and 35. It is religious evil. And so Judah pursued their evil with all the certainty of their Old Testament faith. They had more assurance in their evil because they were religious about it. That's what can happen when religion does not lead to righteousness And it's so distorted and twisted, it inflames the practitioners to practice evil with certainty. It's bizarre. It's hard to understand. It's been very difficult for me to get my mind around for many years. But that's the case here. It is religious evil. And then, it's not only that, but it's persistent. In verse 30 and 31, he said, you've done it since your youth. You keep doing it over and over again. And then he says, it happens among the privileged. In your leadership, in verse number 32, kings and princes and priests and prophets, men of Judah. And so the leadership was behind this. And when the leadership gets behind something, what we discover is that they become very strong moral standards when leadership acts wickedly. Chaucer asked, if the gold rust, what shall the iron do? It's hard for those that are followers in society or institutions to live righteously when the leadership is corrupt. And that's what happened here. And then it's profoundly deceptive. They thought they were growing closer to the Lord by their religious practice. But in verse 33, the Lord says, Oh no, your religion has not brought you closer to me. It has actually caused you to be estranged from me, in verse 33. And they have turned to me the back. That's not what they thought. They have turned to me the back, not the face. They thought they were turning the face, not the back. It was profoundly deceptive. And that was in spite of the teaching. There's always an enormous gap between evil practice and the Scripture. I rose up early to teach them, yet they have not listened or received instruction. And then, look at verse 34 and 35. This is involved in religion, but... Look at the result of what happens in verse 34 and 35. The logical progression of their evil. But they have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. So they polluted the temple. And they built the high places of Baal which are in the valley of the son of Hinnon 
to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. Molech was an ugly image and God holding a pot underneath which a fire was burnt and they would place their infants in it. Which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. I I need to clarify something here as we think about this. You've got to understand, Judah never stopped worshiping God in the temple. They didn't have a burn the Bible day. There was no great movement of global atheists to denounce the existence of God. No one did that. Judah did not subtract the Old Testament religion. They added to it. It's precisely what they did. They they didn't engage in subtraction. They engaged in addition. And that's often what religious people do. This is really difficult to say. And I wish I had a pleasant way of saying it. But there really is no pleasant way to say this. And that is, there is just some religious practice and practitioners that make God sick. In fact, Jesus threatened one of His own churches in Revelation 3, 14 and 15. I will spew you out of my mouth, which is putting it nicely. So please, do not live with the naive notion that all sincerity in religion and all religious practice pleases God. It doesn't. It must be met with truth and it must produce righteousness. Now there's a larger point that I'm trying to make here. Systematically and institutionally, Israel, Judah, was invested in their evil. It was hard to extract it. Even the ministry of Jeremiah could not chase away or eliminate the evil of Judah. In other words, Jeremiah preached for 50 years and Jeremiah never had a convert. That's how ingrained the evil was in Judah. And beloved, Judah was the center of the activity of God in the Old Testament. I think eschatologically, Jerusalem will be. There's some sweet people who would disagree, but that's my best understanding of it. But at least then, it was the center of the activity of God. It was the place of the temple and the king's palace. David had ruled and reigned there, and he's the model for what Jesus would become. And God extracted and expelled Judah out of the land into captivity. If God would do that to Judah, what would God do to any nation that rebels against His clear word? I know there are an awful lot of needs in our nation and even our own community. There are financial needs, probably infrastructure needs, their education needs. All of these are legitimate, but I've got to tell you, if I read the text right, and I believe I do, the most important and most urgent need we've got as a nation and people is to get right with God. And I believe once we start there, the Lord's going to help us with the rest. Now somebody may object and say, you know, I, I don't like that kind of God. I must say to you, God's not on trial this morning. And neither are His people. And neither are the preachers. Now, let me tell you what I mean here. Let's imagine 
you're part of the Allied forces back in 1945, and you come upon the concentration camp Auschwitz. And you're part of a tank battalion, you've got some foot soldiers and infantry ahead of you, and you come upon the concentration camp, and Nazis open fire on you, and you return fire and obliterate the Nazis. And the Jews, the Jewish captives, raise their hands and celebrate. Do you have a problem with that? Because I sure don't. They are celebrating their liberation. The end of affliction. The end of their torture. And even death at the hands of their Nazi captors. You have to understand, our evil and our wickedness is to God what Nazi atrocities were to the Jews in World War II. This is the God who is, and there is no other. We have to take Him as He is, and He's not changing. There is no evil so large, so intimidating, so boisterous, that God cannot topple it. But, but there's a third thing I, uh, here, and, and that is, there is no sin so awful God cannot forgive it. Now I want you to think for just a moment. And I don't want you to tell anybody, and please don't shout it out about your spouse, but what is the worst thing you've ever done? I want you to settle that and get a picture of that in your mind for just a moment and hang on to it for just a moment. What is the worst thing that you have ever done? I know you cringe over it, but in this text the Lord's got some hope for you. There is the hope of forgiveness and salvation. In verse 38, the Lord says, I'm going to take possession of you. You've offended me, but I'm willing to cancel your sin and take possession of you and make you my own. Verse number 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I am a king and I am gathering a kingdom and a people and subjects to myself. And the Lord God is willing to make you his own. I don't know how he does it, but when he picks a team, everyone is first and no one's last. And that's what the Lord is promising you because of his grace. And then, verse 39 and 40, then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. In other words, there's a conversion there. A change. And, and then in verse 40, it becomes permanent. In other words, there's consistency of life in Christ is what he promises here in the text. And then finally, approval. Verse 41. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do good. In other words, you can become an inspiration of joy, not only to those around you, but also to God. That is the kind of Christ life he can give. That's what he does. There is no sin so awful God cannot forgive it. Now, how does He do that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says of Jesus, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, that awful thing you thought about, the worst thing you've ever done, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Father shaped Him into that sin and treated Jesus as if He was guilty of that sin. He who knew no sin became sin 
for us. Jesus became that. Jesus became you. That's what He did. The cross is a marvelous God-planned substitution. And there all of the fury and all of the wrath that God intended for that sin that you just thought about, He poured out on Jesus. Jesus identified with you and took your place. And all the other sins you've ever committed. Now, I want you to think for a moment of all the great things that have ever been done. You could rush real quickly to the Gospels and think about the life of Jesus is what you could think about. All the miracles, the raising children from the dead. You know, anytime Jesus attended a funeral, they never buried the corpse. They never did. He had a way of just raising them from the dead. And the great compassion, the marvelous words, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Well, the rest of that verse says, not only he who knew no sin became sin for us, but it also says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Father is very willing to credit or debit to Jesus' account all of your sins, and He is willing to credit to your account all of Jesus' righteous acts. You don't become Jesus. You don't become divine. I'm not saying that. But the Father is willing, if you'll come to Christ today, He is willing to credit all of that to you. He is willing then to treat you as if you have been just as pure and lovely and beautiful as Jesus. Is what He's willing to do. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become righteousness in Him. So in a moment after my message, we're going to sing a song and we're going to give you the opportunity to give your heart and life to Christ. And the Bible promises if you'll call on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, God will cancel them instantaneously and eternally. And it'll be done. It'll be finished. It'll be acquitted. No more debt to God. There's no sin so awful He cannot forgive. But there's one more thing in the text, and that is there's no future so bleak God cannot bless it. And that's how he finishes the chapter here, with the gay, a great flurry. Now, some have said, our church is aging. Some have said, we're in a transitional neighborhood. It doesn't look like it used to look. Some have said, we're tired. Some have said these things. The Lord has a word for us, beginning in verse 44. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds, and seal them. God's promising something about the future in the middle of a war zone. You will do in the future what you have done in the past, only better. Sign deeds, seal them, take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, to have a city, you've got to have infrastructure and discipline and rule. And so the emphasis here is on cities. For I will cause their captives to return. God is promising a brilliant, bright future unparalleled in their history. I want to say it loud, and I want to say it with as much intensity as is appropriate in this setting. But the best days of Beach Haven Baptist Church are not in her past, but in her future. Amen. 
And I have risked my ministry and my name and my family on that proposition. And we have come and you have stayed because we believe that. And beloved, we are not here to bury a church. We are here to build one. And God help us if we'll walk with Him and seek Him and obey Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater days are yet to come in this city, in this community. There's nothing too difficult for God. And if I may paraphrase William Blake, bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrow of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold, and bring me a chariot of fire. We shall not cease in this battle strife, nor shall the sword sleep in our hands until we've built Jerusalem and this fair and this pleasant land. One simpler poet put it, Jesus can solve any problem. The tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing He cannot do. I believe He's going to do it. The first step is to surrender all to Him and simply collapse in His saving arms in trust and in faith. And we want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. Do you believe that you need Christ and that you've broken the law of God? The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you believe Jesus took your place and God raised Him from the dead? The Scripture says that He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Do you believe that God loves you enough that if you were to ask Him to save you this morning, He would do so? Then I want you to come. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And we want you to seek help. We'll have staff members here in the front. Just tell them, I need to come to Christ. Maybe you've already come to know Jesus, but you need to follow Him in immersion, in baptism. We want you to come as well. Maybe God's moving you to join this church. We want you to come. Maybe God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. We want to pray with you about it. Would you come? Would you quietly stand with me, please? I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask you to respond as God leads you. Father, would you do a neat work in hearts and souls today? Exalt Jesus' name mightily among us in this moment. And I want to pray that you will get everything you intended to get when we gathered here for worship today. Please have all your way, all your will, and let us surrender all. Let us surrender all, even now. I pray this service would not conclude until we've given you what you're due. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.